Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. Let's see, it was uh, the Ides of March earlier. I wasn't where. Uh, I was told to be so, but but I declined. That's actually something I do on a fairly regular basis. When Pretty much whenever anybody tells me, be careful, my immediate response is, no! It's mostly a joke, but also, I'm probably not going to be careful. And then after that, it was, uh, was St. Patrick's Day, which I always have really mixed feelings about. Because, I mean, yes, I'm part Irish, but I'm also part snake, so... It's bittersweet at best. I uh, I mentioned that on Twitter the other day, and it, it raised some questions for some people. So just to answer them here to save time, um, it's pretty standard Galobula situation. Yeah, so that's how that works. Galobula situation sounds like a pretty good name for a terrible band. If you're in a terrible band, feel free to use the name the Galobula situation. I'll tell you what. Enough of this nonsense. Let's get into some entirely different nonsense. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Rick Heineken, and it is once again a synopsis haiku. A hypothesis. Hawkeye is a royal jerk. On to synopsis. Thanks, Rick. Rick's uh, working on a Power Pack podcast that he's going to start up, and he uh, asked me for some advice on it and let me listen to a preview episode, and it's really good, so I'll let you know when that comes out. Defenders, number 27, September 1975. Three Worlds to Conquer. Written by Steve Gerber, trotted by Sal Buscema, inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by Joe Rosen, colored by Al Wenzel, and edited by Len Wein. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, and The Guardians of the Galaxy. Featuring Yondu, Major Vance Astro, Charlie 27, and Martinex. Previously in The Defenders. Valkyrie had had enough of Jack Norris, the pushy estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger was currently inhabiting. She attempted to be patient, but Jack's continual assertions that Val was crazy, Val was still Barbara, and Val was in love with him, strained the limits of the Norse warrior's civility. When Jack decided to double down on his entitled assholery by grabbing his purported partner and attempting to non-consensually smooch her around to his way of thinking, Valkyrie snapped and told the matrimonially-minded meathead to leave her the fuck alone unless he finds himself in the mood to get murdered. Hooray! Concurrent to this connubial kerfuffle, a quartet of intrepid and largely incompetent time travelers from the 31st century, named the Guardians of the Galaxy, made their way to 1970s Earth. The team of time trapesers consisted of Major Vance Astro, a thousand-year-old sad sack spaceman who had some telekinesis or something. Charlie 27, a refrigerator-shaped muscle man from Jupiter who dressed like a McDonald's-branded dominatrix. Yondu, a blue-skinned, red-mohawked warrior from Tau Ceti IV. And Martinex, a dude from Pluto who is made of crystal and allegedly good at science and math. 
It seems that our 31st century solar system is in a real pickle, and had been conquered by a race of interstellar imperialists named the Badoon, who were keen on manifesting their destiny all over humanity. In an attempt to thwart these cosmic colonialists, the Guardians of the Galaxy decided to seek advanced military tactics and technology from Earth's distant past. Interesting strategy. Surprisingly, this clever plan didn't go so great. The Guardians crashed their spaceship, inadvertently created a super-evolved eel monster named Elar who threw dead fish at New York, and created a rift in the time-space continuum when Vance bumped into his younger self. Bad job, Guardians! Fortunately, the futuristic fuck-ups bumped into the Defenders. After Steve used his magic to help defeat Elar, Charlie-27 and the Hulk strategically punched the spaceship until it wasn't broken anymore. Hooray! Vance took this opportunity to jeopardize the entire universe by filling in his younger self, and us the reader, on the future history of Earth. Bad idea! But also, hooray! Vance told Vance that by the early 80s we had fully wrecked the ozone with our deodorants, so everybody needed robot limbs to go outside. Then NASA launched Vance on a thousand-year solo space mission to go to Tau Ceti 4. In the 90s, we used all our new robot limbs to fight against each other in the Bionics Wars, which I think might have been an Image Comics crossover event, and blew up most of Canada. Whoops. Then in 2000, Martians invaded and enslaved humanity. The Martians left after 75 years or so, but then a bunch of jerks called the Techno Barons, who are apparently not an EDM supergroup, ran things for 500 years while they fought over moon real estate. The rest of humanity eventually got sick of the Techno Barons and overthrew them and everything was great for a few hundred years. We colonized the rest of the solar system and genetically engineered dudes like Martinex and Chuck 27 to live on otherwise uninhabitable planets. Then we found a space shortcut to Tau Ceti 4 and established peaceful relations with Yondu's people, built a colony, and still had 50 years to set up a Welcome to Tau Ceti 4, you've wasted the last thousand years of your life party for Vance when his ship finally arrived in 3006. Hooray! Then the Badoon showed up and murdered and enslaved humanity. Hey, that's our job! Vance teamed up with the other Guardians and started to get their thwart on, eventually reclaiming New York City for humanity and its allies. Which brings us up to the present. Or future? Or past? Or something! When old Vance finished his future history lesson, Steve erased the information from young Vance's mind on account of time paradoxes. Then he teleported young Vance back to his abusive home. Man, tough day to be a Vance. The Defenders decided to accompany the Guardians back to the 31st century and help them fight for humanity's liberation. Hooray! The octet of colorfully clad costumed freedom fighters piled into their newly punch-repaired spaceship and hurtled themselves into the future. Gadzooks! With what unexpected horrors will our time-tossed titans have to tussle? Are all of Vance Astro's efforts a colossal waste of time? And are the Guardians of the Galaxy as bad at traveling through space as they are through time? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so medieval Space Vegas and savage Willy Wonka swamps for starters. Gosh, between the thousand-year space journey and the 15-page future history lesson that gets erased, kind of seems like it. And, yep, they sure are. In high orbit above a beautiful and fragile blue-green marble. Oh, shit, that's not a marble. That's Earth. My bad. In orbit high above Earth in the year 3015, 
a fleet of Badoon led by the delightfully named but somewhat less delightfully dispositioned Lord Sire Droom, is surprised to see the Guardians of the Galaxy spacecraft, the Captain America, bleep into existence from the past. Surprised, but not entirely unprepared. After scanning the ship and taking note of the nine life forms aboard, the Lord Sire, which is a pretty dope title, orders his underlings to do some kind of sciency bad guy stuff that will trigger a trap as soon as the Guardians and their guests attempt to trigger their teleportation system. Meanwhile, aboard the Captain America, the Guardians of the Galaxy prepare to trigger their trusty teleportation system. Damn it, guys. Hey, wait a minute. Droom sensed nine life forms? But there's only four defenders and four guardians. That means that they must have brought... Oh, shit. Well, maybe they brought Aragorn, Val's flying horse. That's what I'm holding out hope for. Anyway, our heroes are preparing to teleport down to Earth's surface, apparently unaware that they are being monitored by the Badoon. Hulk is uneasy about having his body reduced to its component molecules and reassembled at a second location. What a baby. Charlie 27 manages to placate his new green buddy, and Hulk, Vance, Val, and Yondu climb into the four teleportation tubes and prepare themselves for a trip to Earth. Man, looking at those tubes, it looks like they might just be traveling by those pneumatic tubes they used to have at banks in the 80s. As Martinex pushes his button, the Badoon baddies push their button, and the teleport beams are deflected, hurling the demolecularized do-gooders every which way. Dang. Now see, this never would have happened if they just used those tubes from the bank. Marty announces that something has gone awry and the four heroes have been sent scattered somewhere across subspace and could be anywhere. Which is terrible news. But what's even worse is, as soon as the Plutonian makes his pronouncement, a familiar, obnoxious voice echoes through the ship, demanding that the assembled heroes tell him, What have you done with my wife? Where is she? Well, shit. Yeah, I was really hoping that ninth life form was Aragorn. Heck, I would have settled for Elf with a gun. But no, it turns out that non-listening shitheel Jack Norris stowed away in some kind of a space trunk or something, and now he's aboard the Captain America. So, that sucks. But the yelly asshole raises an interesting point. Where is Valkyrie? Well... It turns out that Val and Vance got beamed to some kind of a weird day-glow swamp on a distant planet that has two moons. The place looks kind of like an Everglades coloring book that was completed by a kid who was wearing 3D glasses and was maybe on acid. The water's maroon, the trees are purple, and the leaves are orange. Before our heroes get much of a chance to explore their tide-eyed landscape, they are assaulted by a horde of very aggressive hairy lizard people. I know, lizards aren't hairy. But you know what? Swamps aren't Dayglow, so we're just going to have to roll with it. Val struggles, well, valiantly, but she's not feeling so good. In fact, the harder she strikes her foes, the weaker and more nauseous she becomes. Huh. As she stabs one of her opponents in the shoulder, her own shoulder begins to bleed. Nearby, Vance isn't doing so great himself. A cadre of the vicious quasi-reptilian aggressors force the thousand-year-old spaceman under the blood-red swamp water. Things seem hopeless for old, and I do mean old, Vance. But then, he remembers that he has telekinesis, and sends his enemies flying. Hooray! The forgetful freedom fighter notices that his ally Val is being overpowered by her attackers. 
For a moment, Vance seems unsure what to do. Then, once again, he remembers that he has telekinesis and uses it to scatter the lizard apes that had swarmed over his compromised compatriot. Jeez, Vance, maybe you should pin a note to yourself or something. Before the apparently amnesiac Avenger gets another opportunity to forget that he has superpowers, a strange glowing dude appears in the distance and beckons for the distressed do-gooders to follow him so that he can provide Valkyrie with medical assistance. Not sure what else to do, the confused and contused costumed companions go with the weird glowing dude. Fair enough. Meanwhile, back aboard the Captain America, everyone is still trying to figure out what happened to their missing buddies. Well, almost everyone. Jack Norris is still just kind of yelling and threatening to hit everyone with a wrench. What a stupid asshole. Doctor Strange uses a spell to freeze the belligerent blowhard in place, paralyzing him until he learns to act like a fucking grown-up for a change. Man, I don't get to say this very often, but way to go, Steve. But what of the other missing chums? Gosh, when I phrase it that way, it makes it sound like I'm talking about the Hardy Boys' husky pal Chet. Well, Chet's probably still working on his yellow jalopy in the idyllic yet strangely smuggler-ridden town of Bayport. The Hulk and Yondu, on the other hand, find themselves in a significantly less idyllic environment. The respectively green and blue duo find themselves beamed to a medieval-looking alien city, where everyone is totally shit-faced. Yes, they are in a place that I like to call Planet Ancient Vegas. Or regular Renfair. Take your pick. As the conspicuously skin-toned pair of heroes pick their way through the Bacchanalian cityscape, the Hulk notes that there is an air of sad desperation about the revelers' purported partying. Yondu notices it too, but a language barrier prevents them from questioning any of the drunkards more closely. Suddenly, the heroes hear a shriek of distress coming from nearby that requires no translation. When they arrive at the source of the disturbance, they find a group of dudes about to hack a screaming lady apart with their swords. Yondu uses his magic flying arrow thingy to send the marauders scurrying. Oh, if I hadn't mentioned it before, Yondu has a magic flying arrow thingy. It's pretty nice. Rather than thanking her mohawk-having rescuer, the would-be sword depository slaps Yondu and runs off in a huff. Weird. But our perplexed protagonists have little time to dwell on this minor mystery, as they soon find themselves being accosted by a patrol of robot skeleton owls who announce in an alien language that for having disrupted the Festival of Death, the two heroes must be brought to justice. Naturally, Hulk smashes the shit out of the robot skeleton owls. Hooray! Then a giant robot owl shows up, accuses the Hulk of killing its babies, and shoots some beams out of its eyes that instantly hypnotize the Emerald Avenger and his Azure ally. Meanwhile, back aboard the Captain America, now that Jack has been engaged in an involuntary game of freeze tag, the rest of the gang is free to get down to the serious business of locating the rest of their party. At Steve's insistence, Martinex has rigged up a system that will allow the sorcerer to tap into the ship's computer and mystically boost its sensors. Where previous to Steve's magical power boost, the computer could only cast out a narrow net looking for information, it can now send out a vast web, one that could encompass whole worlds and star systems. Yes, with Steve's power and Martinex's know-how, the two have developed a real worldwide web. Thank you. Thank you. As Steve sends his cyber-slash-astral projection out to surf the net, the Badoon baddies who have been secretly monitoring our hero's ship 
are alarmed at the power surge level that Steve's sorcerous powers have lent to the vessel, concerned that a force of that magnitude could potentially topple the entire Badoon Empire, Lord Sire Droom demands that the power source be found and destroyed at once. Back on the dorm room psychedelic poster of a world where Val and Vance are stranded, the glowing dude glows real hard at Val, and that seems to heal her up. Hooray! Then he stops glowing and reveals himself to be... Some dude in a blue bodysuit with a yellow starburst, the shape not the candy, belt buckle. Vance asks the stranger who he is, and the stranger answers, A stranger. One to whom you now owe a favor. Eh, fair enough. Back on planet Sad Drunk Renfair, or as I like to call it, Renfair, the giant robot owl leads a mesmerized Hulk and Yondu to some kind of a throne room. They are brought to a dude in a purple robe and a brain-looking crown who is surrounded by scantily clad ladies who, along with the aforementioned robed dude, talk about how much they like hedonism and watching torture and stuff. They seem like real dicks. The robot owl again insists that the two off-worlders killed my babies, and the crown-wearing guy explains to the ladies that he programmed the robot to think of other robots as her children, basically just to be a dick. Eh, mission accomplished. Then he orders that Hulk and Yondu be brought to the studio and prepared for the games. Hmm. Meanwhile, back on the Captain America, an alarm goes off. Uh-oh. Steve is still doing his whole astral cyberpunk thing, but the rest of the gang rushes to the transporter room and are greeted by a group of 20 or so speedo-clad lizard men. Is this a heavily themed, very specific bachelorette party? Worse. It's the Badoon elite guard come to claim the ship as their own. Well, so maybe not worse, but still pretty bad. To be continued. And as you listeners may remember, last week, Corey had eaten an enchanted hot wing and was banished to the land of wind and ghosts. But fortunately, he was able to create his own mystic wind while there and blow himself right back into our dimension. Corey, how are you doing? Thank goodness for hot wings. I'm well. How are you? I am also doing well. How are you enjoying your time in Cambodia? It has been excellent so far. It's a beautiful country great place to visit. Excellent. So on a scale of 10 to 11, how accurate was the movie Kickboxer in its depiction of Cambodia? Um, I think I just haven't been to those places, so I'm gonna take an uneducated guess and say 10. That's still very good. Well, it's a scale of 10 to 11. You kind of well, I mean, it was obviously a very accurate movie. The dance scenes alone will, will indicate that. And mm-hmm. uh, there were some nice temples there. So I'm, I'm assuming that the, uh, the movie was very accurate. And you've just confirmed that with your score. Well, you're welcome. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> sure. So speaking of things that are accurate, how did you like this comic book? Wow. It was another one of these instances where I feel like there was a whole lot going on, and yet I'm waiting for something else to happen. There was a lot of setup in this one, I think, especially compared to the last issue. 
the last issue was one that really just kind of breezed by and there was a ton of exposition and this one had almost no exposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're kind of launched into it blind. But there was some pretty fun stuff happening and I, I like where I think it might be going, although honestly it could be going almost anywhere. Mm. What are your thoughts on where it might be going? Uh, to Weirdo Land. I think we're already... <laughs> in at least a couple different weirdo lands we've got drunken that's true planet and two moons planet yeah i'm curious because it looks like what i had initially dubbed planet ancient vegas uh <laughs> is maybe gonna turn into when they said get them dressed and take them to the studio it takes it in a different direction and like i think we're gonna get some send up of what in the 70s was like modern media culture Mm. Uh, and i think that could be interesting it seems almost you read some x-men stuff in the 80s right Mm -hmm. do you remember the mojo verse stuff mojo verse that does not ring a bell okay that was the x-men's version of like a ratings mad almost omnipotent ruler who was deranged and obsessed with television scores and like nielsen ratings and things and i think this is the the weird king dude with the brain looking hat Mm -hmm. seems like he might be almost a precursor to mojo so could be interesting and then yeah there's a lot where i'm not sure where it's going i mean obviously there's going to be some kind of a confrontation with the badoons specifically with lord sire droom who Seems like an interesting fella. And then we're going to find out what's going on with Val in the scene that is both wildly misrepresented and spoiler heavy on the cover. Yeah, it sure is. Like, Doctor Strange and Hulk aren't on that planet with them. And we don't know from the interior of the issue that the people that are attacking Val are the female versions of Badoons. But the cover told us that. So it's a weird, yeah, combination of being inaccurate and misleading but also giving you a huge spoiler do you think you would have figured out that the people on the planet were lady badoons yeah i was wondering if that when they did the thing that messed with the transport device that that put everybody in the different planets if that also messed with the time continuum at all i don't think it messed with the time continuum yeah, that, that makes the most sense. But, you know, part of me wants to believe that these are, like, pre-Badoons before they evolved to lose their hair and stuff. Yeah, m- and maybe. That things are... The fact that they have hair yeah. kind of bothers me just because they're, they're lizards, man. Like, yeah, lizards don't need hair. And it seems like kind of a cop-out. I mean, the, the male Badoons don't seem to have any fur or hair. And I wonder if the character design of the women Badoons was so that they could keep them seeming primitive and not give them clothes, but still have them be covered up. But, like, I mean, it's not like they would have nipples because they're lizards. But then they have hair in their lizards, and I don't know. It's some confusing character yeah. design. It is It is confusing. And I'm, I'm glad that there's not necessarily a time differential evolution thing going on in there because then that lays the groundwork for potential like a genocide by messing with the space-time continuum which i don't think people want to be involved with yeah i mean the whole time travel thing got so screwy with the last issue where like oh if you mess with the time continuum then the consequences could be dire 
or totally non-existent, or it's probably fine to mess with the time stream, but don't do it. So it's it, tough to tell with time travel these days. I, I am glad that they are staying put in the year 3016 or whatever it is. I think. Yeah. Like I said, I might be wrong about that. I also wasn't entirely sure if Lord Sire Droom sent them to specific locations that he picked out as a form of torture and death for them, or if it was just random, like multi-ball style, yeah, I'm going to fuck with their teleporter, see where they end up. Yeah, I don't know either. It did seem like with Val's struggles, like when she stabs the Badoons, she herself gets hurt somehow. Yeah, I think that's supposed to be the clue that they're women. Because she has that as her weakness. Oh, right, That right, she right. can't attack people of her own gender because she was originally devised as some kind of a feminist straw man sort of character. But I actually liked that continuation and that almost elaboration of that being her version of Kryptonite. Because before it's always just been like she would realize somebody was a woman and then she would be physically unable to punch them. In this, it seems like she doesn't realize that they're women, so she is punching them and doesn't realize why it is weakening her and hurting her and inflicting that same harm on her. And I think that's kind of a neat elaboration of her weakness there. And I think really the only clue that we have that these primitive-seeming Badunians are in fact women. Mm, good analysis. Thank you. How the fuck did Jack Norris end up on that spaceship? <laughs> I had the same note I, I wrote. Why is Jack Norris on the damn Captain America? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I was so relieved when Val told him to basically fuck off forever at the end of the last issue. I was like, okay, well, I don't think he's going to fuck off forever, but at least we won't have to deal with him on this space trip. And then I think it was like the first page we see Lord Sire Droom and his underlings saying... We scan nine life forms on the Captain America. And I, I did a little math in my head and was like, wait a minute. There's four Guardians. There's four members of the Defenders. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it's him again. It's him again. And then he shows up and is a total asshole. I will say this yep. that I liked about his portrayal. He is now being treated by the other characters and by the comic book itself, it seems. Like he is a total asshole. Yeah, about time, guys. I feel like the comic book has caught up with my analysis of the character. I feel like before we were supposed to feel sympathetic towards him. And now it really is just like, no, he's just an asshole and a buffoon. And everybody tells him to shut up and it's kind of comic relief. I am way happier with that depiction of Jack Norris. Yeah, same here. And... I also had the thought when he shows up on the, the spaceship, he's wearing his evil colors. He's got like a Green Goblin, <laughs> Doctor Doom kind of yep. thing going on. Not yeah. good. No, and he's also got a wrench. And I'm like, where the fuck did he find that wrench? Are they still using wrenches to repair spaceships? I thought it was just all done with punches and magic at this point. <laughs> no, did no, he bring no, a wrench uh, from home? Martin X needed the uh, wrench to fix the internet. Right. Good point. Maybe Jack did bring the wrench with him, and then they just yanked it from him and were able to use it to fix the internet. Yeah. Like, ah, perfect. It's even a metric. Because finally, in the year 3016, we're using the metric system. Took a long time to move over to that base 10 system, but it was oh, worth the wait. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, 
well, this is happening on the ship, hectares away. Ooh, hectares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't Let's actually know how much a hectare is. That's that's a metric one, though, right? I think it's like 10 acres. Yeah. A qu- that's rough, a lot. Give or, take, give or take a few kilometers. <laughs> right. But hectares away, we get to see Hulk and Yondu palling around on a planet ancient Vegas slash Renfair weekend. Oh. <laughs> Yondu is not having any... He has about my reaction to, to what I would be in that. He's just like, yeah. these people are disgusting. This is well, awful. and the Hulk is having the same reaction. And honestly, I was briefly on the Vegas Strip a couple of weeks ago and had kind of a similar reaction. It takes you a minute or two to acclimate to the fact that it is three o'clock on a Monday afternoon and people are stumbling around drunk with their eyes glazed over holding novelty sized cocktails. It takes you a little longer to adjust to the fact that you're in like a CVS buying some toothpaste and there are people stumbling around the aisles holding novelty sized cocktails wasted on a Monday afternoon. It Mm. was very disconcerting. I feel like the Vegas Strip is like if somebody made a theme park making fun of America. And it can be a little bit fun for a while. And then it's very disturbing. And you're just like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I haven't been there since my 20s. Is that when we were there? I think so. And uh, even back then. When I might have liked to party a little bit more than I do now. I, I still had that much. kind of feeling. Yeah. But that is where the situation that the Hulk and Yondu find themselves in. And they very quickly pick up on the fact that there is an air of desperation and depression surrounding the purported drunken revelry. And I thought it was kind of a nice touch. I actually wrote down, I would love to watch a buddy cop movie with the Hulk and Yondu. The way that Yondu relates to the Hulk was, I thought, really cool. Mm. Yeah, they seem to get on quite well. He doesn't express any concern with being called Flaghead all the time. (laughs) Right, which is fair, because he does kind of have a flag on his head. I liked the fact that he didn't seem to condescend towards the Hulk, but also talk to him on a level that he could relate to. I liked everything about Yondu's characterization through dialogue, and I was really disturbed by his characterization in the caption work. That doesn't ring a bell for me. Give me an example of what you mean. Well, it very clearly and explicitly is using Yondu and the Tau Ceti people that he he is of as a stand-in for Native Americans. And I think refers to him explicitly as being a, quote, noble savage. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah, really you're right playing that up and and talks about him as being primitive and and shit and i'm like this is not good and you don't need it i get that they're trying to have him be a stand-in for native americans and that's specifically 1970s although i'm sure it definitely still happens but the the kind of hand-in-hand deification and dismissal of native americans as human beings you know yeah, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't have Yondu uh, shed a single tear at the the end of the episode. When so- yeah, when somebody throws some trash in the streets of Planet Ancient Vegas. Yeah, it just sucked. 
that they did that because they didn't have to because like through his dialogue and his actions he is set up as a fairly interesting character but then when you have the captions explicitly describing him as a noble savage and the last of his primitive race i'm like dude fuck you guys and i guess by you guys i mean fuck you steve Mm. gerber which is unfortunate because uh, overall i like the steve gerber writing that we've been getting lately Mm -hmm. but yeah like i said i liked the interplay between the hulk and yondu I am really curious where they're going, that they are set up at this Bacnalian evil planet that they interrupted the death games when they rescued that woman. And now they're being sent off to the studio and Hulk's going to get a new outfit. And I really want to know what the Hulk's new outfit's going to be. Yeah. Do you think when they were scripting the current Thor movie, they uh, read this part of the uh, Defenders? Uh, or did that come I would from be surprised, but I think there is a lot of different parallels to that going on um i think there are more direct analogies in in the thor stories that they were referencing but this definitely plays into a similar trope and there are definitely analogies to the weird king dude with the brain crown and jeff goldblum's character the parallel character that i was mostly struck by was uh he reminded me of dom de louise in the history of the world part one as the like i think he was playing nero or definitely one of the more corrupt caesars uh-huh. and yeah I, I was like i was like he he's gonna call for a treasure bath soon uh <laughs> but i am really curious as to where that story is going that is definitely the one that i was most intrigued by the other story arc that is taking place several hogsheads away <laughs> That's neither metric nor a measurement of distance. That's like a deli brand. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's like an old English measurement thing. Like you could get a hogshead of mead maybe when you visit planet ancient Vegas. Man, that sounds like a lot of mead. I think it is. You could you could fill a lot of mead into a hogshead. Yeah. There's a pun in there somewhere, but I'm not able to grasp it. That's okay. That's probably for the best. But down on uh, the the swamp planet, we get the the story that's going on with Val and Vance Astro. Vance acquits himself fairly well. Uh, I was pretty impressed by his combat prowess with his psionic abilities. Did a pretty good job. Sure. And we meet a new mystery man. What did you think of this new mystery fellow who is a being of light who can heal people by, I don't know, ravening them? Yeah, I, uh, light power. Yeah, had a little concern when he first showed up because I, I feel like I've seen him depicted with the a hat with a fin on it, and then he that reminded me of Doctor is it Doctor Light or Mister Light that douchebag? Oh yeah, no, he's a different, very different character. Yeah, I know, uh, but but he seemed almost like some sort of a weird inverse of that. It's like <laughs> I use light it, for good, and this other guy uses it for evil, and. Like, yeah. Then I was just thinking of Dr. Light and how I don't like him. That's reasonable. And we have certain reason to believe that this guy seems maybe not entirely altruistic because he does have the, why well, healed her and now you owe me one. Yeah, totally. It's like when you don't ask how much the medical procedure is going to cost and then... Oh, exactly. You get it and they're like, nope, nope. Now you have to do stuff for me. Yeah, they're going to get his bill. They're going to get his anesthesiologist's bill. And that's oh. the one that they get you on. 
Mm. Oh, very disturbing. Yeah. I've been saying for years, Planet Ancient Badoon needs single-payer health care. Otherwise, we're all under the thumb of Big Light Guy. Yeah, well, I just, you know, the rest of the Badoonians lack the political will, I guess. Oh, boy. Wake up, sheeple! <laughs> Wait, I guess they're not sheeple because they're lizards. I've already talked too much shit about the lizard people. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't mean I the bad dude. We need to go. They're different lizard people. Uh, <laughs> Wait, how many Manhattans have you had? I haven't had any. I have had one and a half hot toddies, and that is all. <laughs> okay, well, I think that puts you squarely outside of lizard people <laughs> conversation territory. Excellent. And then the third story arc we get is what's happening aboard the Captain America after Doc puts Jack Norris in stasis in a hilariously condescending way. We move on and get to see Martinex running around trying to fix the cosmic internet with Steve's help and try to figure out what's going on. And we get a little hint of, once again, how cosmically powerful Steve is. Which does kind of beg the question, we saw in last issue that he just teleported them instantaneously aboard the spaceship from New... Why didn't he just teleport them down to Earth with his magic? Um, maybe he was tired. It's like a finite, uh, well, a finite deal, right? He, he gets tired after he does a big spell. That's never entirely clear. Whether he like depletes some kind of a mystical battery or whether he gets stronger with continued usage. It's tough to tell. And he certainly doesn't seem at any loss per, for power. The Badunians pick up on, I believe, him as a power source, and he fries all their instruments and then is able to reach out to the entire cosmos and figure out where his buddies are located. It's a nice depiction of what his power set is. And we actually get a, a somewhat brief description and explanation of the ways that his powers get used in the letters column. Did you read any of the letters column? I read none of the letters column. Well, there's a couple of letters in it that are definitely worth noting. One of them I'll, I'll get to in a little bit. But there was one by Ed McCarthy who was basically uh, just talking about the way that Doctor Strange's powers get handled and how inconsistent it is. And the editorial reply to it was... As you've no doubt noticed, Ed, Steve G. chose not to let Doc magically repair the Guardian starship, not to let him wipe the bad dunes off the face of the future Earth with a wave of his hand, and so on. Gerber tells us he's pretty much come to the conclusion that Doctor Strange should have to act indirectly to affect physical phenomena. Otherwise, the old Sorcerer Supreme could do anything, and that would make for a very dull comic book. So I think that is kind of an interesting take, although... He definitely does seem to hold Steve in reserve as a kind of deus ex machina that can ultimately fix any situation if they decide that it's needed. True. Like setting all the clocks on their spaceship to the right time. <laughs> they have so many clocks on that spaceship. Too many. I don't think I they agree. need that many clocks. Dude, when you have multiple planets in play, you need to have just establish some kind of like a Greenwich Mean Time and stick with it. Like, if you have how many time zones there are on Earth and then carry that over to the other 10 planets that they've colonized and are hanging out on at that point, you've got to just let the clock thing go at that point, man. Yeah, otherwise you'll or be confused. Or at the very least, I'm surprised they're not using digital clocks at that point. Yeah, I know. They're analog. Yeah. Yep. It's time yeah. for the wave of the future, man. Mm-hmm. Digital yep. watches. All right. 
Maybe with a calculator. Oh, boy. I used to have one of those that turned into a little robot. That was pretty fun. Wow, that's fancy. I just had the regular one. I got it out of a, a like a literal gumball machine, I think, for like seventy five cents. Wow! It was it like didn't turn into a robot that moved around and danced or anything. Um, <laughs> you know, like robots do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. They had one yeah. of those in Japan. In the... A digital watch? No. I, wow! Ro- you really are living in the land of the future. <laughs> when you walk into the hotel, there's this robot that would come over and be like, "Hey, what's up?" And move around. That's pretty cool. Oh, was it? Was it cool? Did you dance with the robot? No, I was actually kind of freaked out by it. I just stayed, I gave it a wide berth, but people seemed interested. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Anyway, what were, what were we discussing? Before we got to your tale of Japanese robot hotel servants, that sounds creepily sexual. <laughs> You're not supposed to have sex with the robot, are you, Corey? I would say personally, no. It's not my cup of tea, but, you know. Good. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions. Some people want to have sex with robots, I guess. Sure. We got to meet a robot that I don't <laughs> think anybody had sex with in this issue, although the robot did think that it had some kids, which oh. was confusing. Yeah. The, the ones that uh, the Hulk smashed all of these robots, and then a bigger robot uh, showed up and was like, you killed my babies. And I was like, wait, what? I know. That was harsh. It was harsh. And then the Dom DeLuise King said something about, oh, ignore her. That's a quirk I put in her programming. I wonder if that means that later on that robot is going to be portrayed as a more sympathetic character. Could be. The other question I had about that robot lady was, why didn't the Hulk revert to Bruce Banner form when he got hypnotized by the robot? Seems Mm. like that would have happened. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just a different kind of, you know, the whole magic science thing that we run into. Yeah, I wonder if maybe he just at this point is kind of base level disoriented, like kind of uh, like down to his core. And, and so he he just has kind of a base level of agitation being a thousand years in the future that that's going to have the adrenaline kicking in enough that'll keep him hooked up for a bit. Just a massive contact high from being around all those drunken fools. Yep. Yep. That's probably it. The Badunian elite guard shows up at the end aboard the Captain America. I, I gotta say, Martinex doesn't seem like he's doing a great job as a security officer. Like, it's one thing if the Badoon elite guard can get aboard, but to have that coupled with Jack Norris getting on board, I don't know, man. Well, um, in, in his defense, there was a, a solitary beep that <laughs> alerted everybody to the presence of the uh, Bedunians. Yeah, I mean, too little, too late, I think, in terms of, like, the beep shows up after they're already on board. You need some kind of a warning system that they're approaching. I, I have my, my questions about, uh, about Marty's uh, capabilities as, as, as chief security officer. I think they may need to uh, switch his Tasha Yar out for a, for a real wharf soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they'd, they'd, they'd benefit from that. Speaking of which, did you notice how much the Captain America looks like the Enterprise? I totally noticed, yeah. That seems like a very specific choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they were having some fun with that. Yeah. 
I was also not particularly impressed by the Badunian elite guard. I know it's probably just my Earth-centric focus, but, like, only one dude can really pull off that look well, and, and that's Namor. And, and these guys are no Namor. I kept thinking they should have brought Namor with them. Like, and the Badoons would have just been like, well, shit, he's our new leader. Like, mm. look at how that guy fills out a Speedo, a cape, and a crown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'll disagree with you there. I, I think the green skin and the red Speedo, it's, it's simple, you know, It's but it's a, it's a good look. Sure. I don't know. There was something about, like, at the end, them being called the elite guard, they just did not look elite to me. They looked like, uh, I don't know, scrawnier, like of the version of those Godzilla fart monsters, but cosplaying badly as Namor. And uh, I, I just wasn't screaming elite to me. Wow, you put a lot of thought into that. Okay, that's, that's a fair. That's a fair <laughs> argument. Yeah, like like I said, it's probably I've got an Earth centric fashion focus, and fuck, I don't, I don't mean to body shame the Badoons, but it just wasn't working for me. Yeah, well, I mean, going around comparing people to Namor, you kind of run into trouble. Yeah, that isn't really fair. There is only one Namor. True. You should study computers. Doc Strange being the inventor of the uh, internet. <laughs> Seems like kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah, but he's just so humble about it. Or he doesn't want people to know what he uses the internet for, uh, so he doesn't spread the word around. It's. I mean, we have discussed his browser history before. Nothing so to see here. Th- this may be the origin of it, and maybe it's a good thing that that search history lives in the year 3016, mm. when there are perhaps more relaxed social mores. The only other thing that I wanted to bring up, which I mentioned briefly before, is the other letter that was of interest to me. It's a very interestingly written letter that kind of seems like almost an audition reel. And it is of specific note because it is written by J. Mark Dematius or... J.M. Dematius, who later on writes The Defenders for a while, and also wrote the uh, Justice League International series in the, uh, or co-wrote that in the 80s for DC, and is uh, one of my favorite writers. So we got a letter from him talking about how much he likes Steve Gerber's writing, and I think that's interesting. I'll read you a little quote from it. You've got awareness, Gerber, and you've got one hell of a talent. You've probably also got a terrific case of eye strain from pouring over letter after letter, so I'll just end by saying, keep it up. Please keep it up. And thanks. I've noticed lately that your worldview seems to have become more negative than ever. The current Citrusville book-burning episode in Man-Thing, possibly being one of the most depressing stories, comics or otherwise, I've come across in a long while. And he's right. It's a really good story, but it is, it is definitely a downer. I'm not being Dr. Paingloss when I say, have hope, Gerber. Beneath the layers of pain, beneath the unbearable tug of duality, there may well lie a grain of truth, real truth. Beyond the jugsaw may be the piece that will put the puzzle together. Have hope, Gerber, and keep fighting the only fight, the fight to inject a little madness into a world grown all too sane. Dang. Yeah, I like his writing style even then, and... Reading that letter makes me excited for when we finally get to his issues of the Defenders. So I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool, and it's it's kind of neat because it's it's like this little time capsule. It's not the first time that we've we've seen a letter in these books from somebody that later on goes to to have a hand in the creation of these 
good stories. So Right. Yeah, I, it's something that I always enjoy when it crops up. Well, speaking of things that I enjoy, how about we listen to Rick sing us a little ditty and then get into the minutia? All right. Hit it, Rick. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thank you. So, what do you feel like starting with? How about some sounds? All right. In this issue, what was your favorite sound effect? I had a a toss-up. They were both pretty simple sounds, but they both kind of made me giggle. And I'll start with the first one, which is on page 18, and it's the lady slapping uh, Yondu when he rescues her, and it makes the sound swat. I also enjoyed that. I like it whenever a flat-up onomatopoeia shows up. Uh, Yeah, I I liked that also. The other one that I, I had was on page 26, and it is the sound that it makes when Steve fries out all of the circuits in the Badunian computer because it cannot handle Netscape 2.0. And it makes the noise, frazzed! I also had frazzed. That's just fun, man. Yeah, man, they all got frazzed. Yep. Yeah, all right. Well, it's an accord. A swat and a frazzed. A swat and a frazzed. Gosh, we've got a lot to say in this category, sartorially speaking. Oh, geez. Yeah. What fashion would you like to comment upon? Well, there is a lot, especially on planet uh, Vegas. There's an, an aesthetic on that planet that is both like Renfair biker hippies, kind of, mm. but with more patterned shirts. So like disco Renfair biker hippies, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely some some 70s like uh, dance fashion going on there. So I had the note, um, everyone on page 16, but especially uh, the guy in the star suit, the guy in the crazy yellow top, and the dude in the green top with the laces. Yep, those are those are the main ones. And the guy in the uh, green top with the laces, it's like a blue-green, kind of Ren fairy looking suit. It's got the weird, like, shoulder rolls, uh, and it's got the Plastic Man laces on it, and it's got kind of a hood. And he's just spilling his martini glass filled with wine all over the place. And he's wearing sunglasses and has a a well-manicured beard and mustache. And it's a specifically weird look. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you've got leopard print shirt that's open down to the navel with the green horizontal striped pants. And then, yeah, you have the guy with the star shirt, I think you called it. I thought maybe they were pot leaves. (laughs) But yeah, he's wearing a one-piece crazy printed shirt, and he looks kind of like Foggy Nelson from Daredevil. Uh, Uh, There's just a lot going on fashion-wise on that page. But the fashion that I wanted to focus on more, we talked a little bit about Lord Sire Droom and his his cosplaying, uh, in my opinion, inelegantly as Namor. But the the main thing that I want to focus on is the mystery man who heals Val. His belt, it's a weird mix between like a pro wrestling style championship belt in that it is big and gold, but then it has like a starburst. It's in a starburst shape. And it made me wonder if seeing as it is in a comic book, if it was camouflage for when he gets punched in the dick. <laughs> because it looks like it's the impact point but he's like look i'm just gonna put that impact there kind of like 
I don't think it's true, but I had heard the rumors that the British's red coats were were that color so that uh, blood wouldn't show up so you couldn't see if they were bleeding. Oh, geez. If that It was just like, I don't want it to show how bad it hurts when I inevitably get punched in the dick because I am appearing in a Sal Buscema comic book. So I'm just going to wear this starburst here. Maybe people will always think I'm being very brave because of how well I'm standing up to constantly getting punched in the dick. And maybe it will make people think they've already punched me in the dick so they didn't bother dang that's a that's a well thought through belt buckle um <laughs> it really is <laughs> i noticed also it had kind of a asymmetrical quality uh where it looked like it was kind of homemade well i mean you can't buy off the rack dick punch belts they gotta be bespoke cory <laughs> <laughs> What were your favorite words in the issue? There were a lot of words in this issue. I, I had two choices. One was a little bit of dialogue that I, I think we touched on also, and, and one was some exposition. The dialogue is on page 16, and, and we mentioned it already, where uh, Yondu is just not having it, and he referred to the party people as uh, revolting, grogged out of their minds, every one of them. And uh, I like the usage of grogged as, a, you know, to be drunk. Yeah, I, I like that too. I also enjoyed on page 17, the Hulk's analysis of the same situation, which is, nothing is right here. People laugh, dance, sing, but people look stupid, not happy. <laughs> and uh, oh, It is very much like your Vegas experience. Yeah, tough but fair, the Hulk. Well played. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. I also really liked a bit of uh, Steve's dialogue, which... I believe we also referenced, but when he uses his mystical might to stop Jack from hitting anybody with a wrench. Enough, Mr. Norris. We shall have no violence here. Is that clear? What? What did you do to me? I can't move. I shall lift the spell when you think you can control yourself, sir. My apologies, Martinex, for Mr. Norris's language and behavior. I'm afraid his notions about reality are still somewhat shall we say, limited. And that is such a sick burn saying that in front of the dude who is unable to move because you put a spell on him. Also, big fan of the condescending, sir. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that whole series of panels is very well played. And uh, yeah, like I said, just nice to see Jack Norris made to look like the fool that he is. Huzzah. Agreed. Yeah, so I also had on page seven some of the editorializing when they're setting the scene for the the planet that that Vance Astro and Val show up on. And uh, that editorializing is, But before Vance Astro can utter another syllable, webbed, herstute hands stab out from the lacework of leaves and vines. And, I don't know, it's with the artwork in there, it has a nice, uh, I like the prose. Yeah, I think that's cool. I also enjoyed when Nighthawk described Charlie 27 as a two-legged Mack truck. And uh, Chuck 27's response was, I'll assume that's a compliment because I don't know what that those words mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like that as a stance. Uh, that kind of almost haughty ignorance, mm. um, I enjoy. Yeah, it's very confident. What was your favorite panel? Let's see. Gosh, there's a lot of really good artwork in here. I think my favorite, though, almost more so because of the subject matter than the way it's drawn, although the way it's drawn is cool, too, 
is on page 15, right at the beginning of when Doc Strange is launching into his diatribe against Norris, and uh-huh. uh, when he's got his hand raised and he's zapping him with the you-can't-move deal. Yeah, I agree. That That is a nice time. What did you have? Well, we'd, we've talked about it at length, but page 16, the depiction of the full-page depiction of drunken revelry, but kind of a forced hysterical revelry. I thought that was really well executed. And then there are a couple of Steve panels from later on. There is on page 23, you get Steve strapped into a cosmic barca lounger set off to create the 31st century internet by merging computers with mysticism. And then we get a continuation of that on the next page, which is actually page 26 because of some ads and shit. But it's just his disembodied head and hands floating through space. And it's just really cool looking. Yeah, I I had that one too. That is pretty cool. In this issue, who had to be a sucker? Who had to act contrary to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthered the plot? Corey, who just had to be a sucker. I struggled with this one, which I know I say a lot, but I uh, really did in this issue. And so I kind of scraping the, the barrel here. But what I came up with was uh, Vance Astro. There was not one, but two occasions where he's just like, uh, when the when the female Badunians are attacking them, and mm-hmm. he's just like, oh god, this sucks, I uh, guess I'll just let him drown me, whatever. And then he's like, oh wait, no, I have these psionic powers. Boom! <laughs> and throws everybody off. And then like five minutes later, the same exact thing happens. He's like, oh no, they're drowning Val, what a bummer. Oh, wait a minute, I can do this thing. So, yeah. I don't, I don't know, why doesn't he just do that all the time and know what his powers well, are, I guess? I think... Maybe he's a thousand years old, so he gets a little senile sometimes. (laughs) He's probably, they cut out all the scenes where he uh, calls hamburgers hamburger sandwiches and, like, Uh. says, uh, is confused that that people are offended when he says super racist shit. Right. Um, Like, dude's a thousand. So, yeah, maybe he forgets what his powers are from time to time or that he has them. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. That That is just like, it is weird that he forgets that he has his powers. I had a couple to choose from. I decided to go with Val for being a little bit slow on the uptake that the people that she's attacking might be female and that that might be why she is reacting in a way that presumably has happened before. Presumably she's familiar with this phenomena and just doesn't recognize that it's what's happening. Although, in Val's defense, she does live in the Marvel Universe where every other woman that she has probably ever encountered has outlandishly large breasts, and these lizard people don't. Mm -hmm. Which was actually something that I appreciated, because there was no reason why a lizard person should have breasts. So, consistent character design, that's kind of nice. But like I said, there there are reasons why she maybe she has never actually like if she recognizes the person she is about to attack as female, then she may just have a mental block against that. And that's previously the way that it's been dealt with. But it seems like this would be something she has dealt with before and should presumably recognize. Mm. Yep. Makes sense. So that's what I went with. My backup was the Hulk for not turning back into Banner, but I think we agreed that he has a contact high from all the time travel and just is uh, generally a little bit stressed out. Yep. So 
Yep. I'm willing to play that one off. Alrighty. All right, time to get into the nit and the grit of the situation. Oh. <laughs> who was the worst offender and who was the best defender? Corey, worst yes. offender. Worst offender for doing pretty much nothing whatsoever, and also just because I generally don't like him, I chose Nighthawk. Okay, fair enough. Which, you know, I know that's a little weak, just omission. I'm sure there's people that did actively a worse job than him, but that was that right. was what I came up with. I think that that's probably fair. He kind of makes fun of Chuck 27 for no goddamn reason. Mm. I don't think he had meant Mack Truck as a, as a compliment. Despite Chuck's assumption otherwise. I decided to go with Martinex, though. Just bad security officer, man. We, we've, we've discussed it before, but like, I, I think they, they really need to put Worf in charge. Yeah, I can't, I can't argue with you there. Like, I was initially going to ding him also for letting his transporter get, you know, missed up. Um, yeah. Mi- mixed up, but that wasn't it, really his. How do you prevent it, that? W- it wasn't really his fault, but there's the accumulation of, like, he hasn't done a good job of anything since we met him a couple of issues ago. Mm. Like, he was wrong with his calculations about time traveling to Earth because he didn't take into account Vance's presence there, uh, and that caused all the shit going down. He crashed the spaceship. He let Jack Norris aboard. He let the Badunians aboard. And he had the transporter thing get hijacked. I think we're supposed to think of him as this, like, ultra-logical, ultra-competent character. But that needs to be established before things start going wrong, rather than just have us be told that, and then nothing he does goes right. So, yeah, I, I, went, I went with Marty on this. Tough but fair. Thank you. That's mm-hmm. what I strive for. Conversely, best defender... Yeah, so I went with uh, Doc Strange on this. He he stops the wrench wielding Norris with great um, sarcastic aplomb. He uh-huh. invents the space internet and stops the Badoon computer by, by hacking it with his brain. All pretty impressive. Good show. Yes, he literally hacks the planet. Well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also had Doc Strange, which I believe makes double Doc Strange as the winner for us two weeks in a row unprecedented what is going on well done dr strange credit where it's due well shucks i believe that is the end of the regular minutia segment which brings us to of course it's a wonderful life so in the year of our lord 1975 and the month of our lord september how was Wong living his wonderful life? So, as we've touched on before lightly, Wong and and Strange have, you know, for the most part, a, a professional relationship, but they, but they also have, a, I think, what the anthropologists call a joking relationship, too, where, you know, they, they know each other well enough that there'll be some little practical jokes here and there that they play on one mm-hmm. another. So, Steve Strange has been pretty preoccupied with... The intersection of mysticism and and music, specifically as it gets into the uh, the the rock, you know, area. So uh-huh. listening to you know lots of Led Zeppelin, uh, Hawkwind, that sort of thing. It's really really feeling it. But he's a little bit freaked out by 
the idea, you know, the the more kind of negative side of this thing, and and what sort of potential cosmic energies that could release, and you know, magician stuff, blah blah blah. And has expressed this concern to Wong a few times. And Wong was down at the record store the other day, and uh, he sees a copy of this record that, that came out in September 1975, and it was actually the first uh, live album that Kiss put out. Oh, alive alive and, yeah and there's a great picture of them on the the stage with all their get up and you know gene simmons creepy boots and there's mist everywhere and so he gets a copy of that record and basically brings it back and props it up on the the hi-fi so you know that the cover is visible and and sets a little timer so that it goes off super loud at about 6 a.m and wakes <laughs> dr strange up freaks the shit out he runs downstairs and is like what in the you know uh whatever strangeism you want to ascribe him to say there he says and uh wong just has a good old chuckle about it and, and that's how wong was living his wonderful life at that point Excellent. Interesting. Do you, do you know that the uh, the this era of the Defenders has a pretty strong tie to Kiss? Yeah, specifically, Steve Gerber. He wrote the premiere issue of the Kiss comic book, which was printed with real Kiss blood. Uh, and he also wrote their Marvel Universe debut in an issue of Howard the Duck. Uh, and I, I think he hung out with the members of Kiss uh, at the time. Well, far out. So interesting stuff. I personally am of the opinion that the best Kiss song ever is Back in the New York Groove off of the Ace Freely solo album. I would put that song over anything else that Kiss recorded. I'll, so, have, to, I'll have to check that one out. I don't know that one. I'll it's a good song. It's, yeah. Uh, Back in the New York Groove by Ace Freely. Good stuff. So that is part of what Wong was up to. But part of what Wong also was up to was commiserating with another member of the Marvel Universe. Because earlier that month, Wong had been hanging out with Professor X. Because they had both entered a contest in Esquire magazine that was a celebrity lookalike contest, and they both were of the opinion that they could win the Telly Savalas lookalike contest, <laughs> which appeared on the cover of Esquire magazine in September of 1975. Now, they got back their, their test shots that they had sent in, and they were rejected, and they realized that they had accidentally been entered into the Yule Brenner category. Oh, jeez. And they're like, no, no, I don't look like Yule Brenner. I look like Telly Savalas. Honestly, both of them look more like Yule Brenner. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, so there, there was a fair amount of commiserating, and uh, Wong was a little down in the dumps for, for a lot of the rest of that month, until Charlie X decided to say, hey, hey, Wong, we need to cheer up. And because I read your mind without your consent, I know what your sense of humor is like. So we're going to sit down on the 19th and watch the premiere of a little show called Faulty Towers. And they did. And they had a fine time watching it. And that is how Wong was leading his wonderful life. That is a delight. That is a fun show. Yeah, he had, he had a good time. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the land of the film kickboxer. Oh, I forgot to ask you. Doesn't really touch on where you're at right now, but how accurate would you say the film Kickboxer 2 was? On a scale of 10 to 11? Yes, I mean, that is the standard kickboxer scale. I'm going to go with 10 on that one, too. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's a... 
It's a good series of films. Well, thank you again so much for, for joining us all, all the way from, from Cambodia. If you would like to get into touch with us, dear listeners, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to find us on other pieces of the internet that Steve Strange invented in the 31st century, and I guess probably took back with him in time, time travel. I just hurt my brain. Um, you can do so on Facebook and Twitter and uh, you leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, that'd be a thing you can do. And if you would like to donate monetarily to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. I had apparently been saying backslash for low these many years, so if that has been previously stopping you from donating to our fine cause, then let it do so no longer. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week where Lisa and I will discuss another episode of the Teen Titans miniseries, and we will be back in two weeks with the Defenders number 28. And I hope that you have a nice time listening to those. Thank you, everybody. What's a good thing to say at the end of podcast? Uh, SWAT! Cool. Frazzed. I'm going to get all grogged up. All right. (laughs)